0: If you would, if you're new with us today, we are in the book of Luke. You can go ahead and start turning there. We're in the 23rd chapter. And we are looking at verses 26 through 38 today. 26 through 38. We have a lot of territory to cover. We're in a familiar story to what I can see probably everyone in here. has read the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so I want to just put this out there for you guys that anytime we hear something that we are very familiar with, which might be a lot of the text and stuff that we go through, especially when we go through a gospel account, to ask yourself three questions. Three questions that you may want to get from hearing something that you're so familiar with. It's easy to tune out things that you are so familiar with. And the first question is this, is how well do I understand it? How well do I actually understand it? Second question is, is can I explain it to somebody else? Can I explain what is going on in this text to somebody else? And third and probably the most vital what difference does it make in your life? What difference does knowing it and being able to explain it, what difference does that actually make in your life? It is a privilege to preach any text, but especially this one. It is a great honor to be able to preach the gospel. It is a passion of mine. It is a it is a joy of mine to be able to preach the gospel. And that is exactly what my aim is today to, to preach the glorious truth about the one event in the, in the pinnacle point of history that all of the events of history were leading up to and all of history flows out of, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. My aim is to be like Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, who said he didn't come with clever speech, he didn't come with clever quips or ways to stimulate the mind. He just wanted to preach the true gospel. He actually goes on to say in that same chapter that some listening to him, they just want profound knowledge. They just want their mind stimulated. Some just want to see signs and wonders. Maybe you're here today. Churches are filled with all kinds of people all over the world with people seeking just those things. Mind-stimulated, signs and wonders. But my hope, my mission, my mission as somebody who is here, is that everyone in this room will hear one thing loud and clear. That is Christ crucified. That is what we preach. Christ crucified. To the wise, it is a stumbling block. To those who are so-called wise, it is foolishness to them. But to the humble, to the humble, to those who seek after God, this text, the truth of Christ crucified, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God unto salvation. May your heart hear it. This morning, and Lord willing, the mission of this text is to produce in you a heart of praise, and a heart of worship. If you would, put your thumb in Luke 23 and scroll back to Psalm 150 with me. I want to read this before we pray this morning. Psalm 150 It's the very last chapter in the book of Psalm. It says this it says praise the Lord praise God in his sanctuary praise him in his mighty expanse praise him for his mighty deeds praise him according to his excellent greatness know who you praise know who you praise And then, praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. In any way you can possibly fathom, praise him. He says, let everything, let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. And with the resounding crescendo, he says, praise the Lord. This is the heart of a person who has been overwhelmed by God's grace, by the majesty of his existence, by his grace, by his mercy. May God give each of us this kind of heart this morning as we reflect on his word and his work on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, it is a glorious to be able to come before you. As Hunter said, to come before the throne and to put our request at your feet. You, You say that these prayers are like an incense offering, a fragrant aroma to you. And we pray, God, that you would receive these prayers, not just from my mouth, but from the hearts of every person in this room as they pray with me. May you receive it May you hear it, and Lord, may you bless, Lord, the prayers of this room right now as we ask, God, to soften our hearts. To renew, if necessary for us, Lord, the joy of our salvation. For those here who may not know you, God, for hearts that are hard and proud, who cannot see the cross as anything but foolishness and unnecessary, I pray that you would pierce those hearts, soften those hearts, and magnify your glory and your kingship to them. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, if you had your thumb where you were supposed to have it, you should be back at Luke 23 right now. Starting in verse 26, it says, When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross he carried behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. Let's stop there for now. Our main point this morning, if you have a handout, or if you have pen and paper and you just want to take notes, our main point this morning is this. Our sovereign king, our sovereign king is a just and mighty judge and a loving savior. Our sovereign king is a just and mighty judge and a loving savior. We finished off last week with Jesus being handed over as a criminal. Convicted for crimes he did not commit, Pilate would submit to the pressures of the people. He would submit to their pressure and the one who created all things would be handed over as a criminal while a true criminal would be set free picture of the gospel is already in full motion, as the one who deserved the cross is being set free, and the one who didn't is on his way to it. Matthew's account would fill in some gaps here uh, that are here in Luke's account, uh, where Pilate, he would hand over Jesus in Matthew's account, it tells us that Jesus was then taken into the the praetorium, into the court. This would be like the governor's house. Into the courtyard, where trained and barbaric Roman soldiers, they would begin to have their way with him. Meaning that they would strip him down to almost nothing, leaving him practically naked. Which was humiliating. If You remember back to the Garden of Eden, it was... It was when they noticed that they were naked, that shame was brought in. And so every Jew would see that as shameful. Every Jew would see that as shameful. And it was, they would begin to mock the king of kings with a crown of thorns. They would put a robe on his back. They would kneel before him in mockery, calling him the king of the Jews. They would beat him. John 19 tells us that he was at this time scourged or whipped. All of this went down before before verse twenty six. It says, "Then in verse twenty six, he was led away." And now, on the road, the last mile on the road to the cross. Our first sub point this morning is this: our sovereign King never lost control. Our sovereign King never lost control. It was. It was Roman law that you would have to carry your own cross. That the man being crucified would have to carry his own cross, but in God's sovereignty, we would be introduced to a man named Simon. It says Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a kind of a northern village in northern Africa. And it was a place where many Jewish families lived. It would have been a place where there were Jewish synagogues there. They had their own language there. And many of them would have their own synagogues, even in Jerusalem, their own places in Jerusalem, so that for events like Passover, they could come to Jerusalem, they could have a place to stay, have a place to hear the Torah, and in their own language. It says he was coming in from another country, or from from the country, which means that this Simon was not there during the trial. He was not there last night as everyone was yelling, crucify him. This means he kind of just stumbled onto the scene. By every stretch of the imagination, it just seemed as though that this was just some kind of random act. This man coming in from the country, he stumbles onto this parade, if you will, of people that are beating him, beating Jesus. They are whipping him. They are yelling out curses at him. There's people crying. There's all things going on. He kind of figures, trying kind to of figure out what's going on here. And then a Roman soldier just grabs him and says, "Here, help this man. You don't say no to a Roman guard." you might be the fourth cross. So he did. It seems very random. But all three synoptic gospels mention this man, Simon. So he's not so random. They all want to bring out this man, Simon, who seems to be random, but he's, he's mentioned in all three gospels. I think they want to make the point that this is not random. In fact, in Mark's gospel... This man, Simon of Cyrene, is also noted that he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. You don't mention other people's names unless the people you're writing to would know who they are. In fact, Mark was the book of Mark was written, the gospel of Mark was written in Rome. So he would have a Roman audience as his initial audience. And fast forward a few years to when Paul wrote the book of Romans or Romans 16, he greets none other than Rufus, who he says is a choice man in the Lord. And his mother, which if you're connecting the dots, Rufus' mother is Simon's wife, who is also like a mother to Paul. So God would take Simon in the middle of being beaten, harassed, Whipped, he never lost control. He never lost his sovereignty. He was still thinking future. And he had this man Simon come in from another country, get grabbed, see the events that take place. His life has changed. He then goes and tells his family, their life has changed. And then that family becomes instrumental in the ministry of Paul as he advances the gospel to the known world. Nothing is random with God. Nothing is random with God. There's so much more that could be said here, but I, I really need to move on. And so we see that Simon and, and, is, and Jesus are being led by the Roman guard and they're on their way, as we see in verse 27, and that a large crowd is beginning to gather. A large crowd is, is, is following. No doubt that this is a very mixed crowd. You have, a, you have a crowd full of Jesus haters that have been growing for months as they begin to listen to the Jewish leadership, Listening to them say that he's doing this by the works of Beelzebul. He's doing this by the works of Satan. So you have this growing hatred for Christ in one group. You have these other group of followers here that are saying, no, no, no. He's going to be the one that sets us free from Rome. And then you have the few that were following him because they wanted to see what he was going to do. So no doubt this is a mixed crowd of Jewish haters. And so-called followers of Christ who were probably lamenting their dreams of Rome's defeat vanishing before their eyes. The one whom they thought would destroy Rome, the one who they thought would end all their pain and suffering, suddenly he is going down and they can see their defeat of Rome going with him. And they're probably pleading, no, Jesus, do something. Just do something. This can't be it. This can't be the end. And so... In fact, we see women here mourning and lamenting the, the ideas that they were beating their chest and crying. Many of the commentaries say that these were actually not even true mourners. They were professional mourners. Women who would be kind of hired to create this scene of mourning for him. These weren't true followers, and I get that because Jesus calls them daughters of Jerusalem. That was not a compliment. That was not a compliment. You might hear daughters of this generation, daughters of this religious society, the way way James and John would be called sons of thunder. These were daughters of the so-called leadership of their religion. And up until this point, the vast majority of Jesus' message has been, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand But here in this moment, on the final mile to the cross, the time for repentance for this generation has passed. And Jesus is going to say nothing to them except for prophetic judgment. He's going to give them nothing but a prophetic judgment and in many ways, very merciful warning. Our second point is this, our sovereign king our sovereign king will by no means clear the guilty our sovereign king will by no means clear the guilty jesus on this road to his death has one last thing to generation to this generation and it is do not weep for me can you imagine all that he's gone through already and he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. This isn't the first time he said something like this. You remember back in Luke 19, as Jesus approached the city, he's approaching into Jerusalem, and what does he do? But he weeps for Jerusalem. He weeps for them. All that he was about to go through, all that he was about to endure in this city and He weeps for them. And he tells them in Luke 19, like he told them here in this chapter 23, that judgment was coming because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. The just judgment of God is coming, he says. Judgment that would be so terrifying and so bad and so awful that it is no longer a good thing for women to be fruitful, but it would be better if women were actually barren and unable to have children. This is a massive cultural reversal. If you remember back to Luke 1, all the way back to Luke 1, we talked about Elizabeth who was barren and how that was a, a curse in their culture, that if you were barren, you were cursed. But Jesus says, no, no, no. A day is coming that if you are fruitful, you are cursed. I can almost picture the women who are crying for him. Have you ever seen your children, if they're kind of doing this fake cry, and you tell them that they're going to get punishment if they keep it up, and they all of suck it right back up? I kind of picture their tears just kind of halting, and their faces changing from one of false mourning to that of deep concern and worry. One commentator gives us some insight describing the events of 70 A.D. He says, Indeed, when you read Josephus' account, you recognize the fulfillment of these words. The barren woman would be fortunate because in this siege, as Roman guards would siege the city of Jerusalem, women would be reduced to the point of boiling and eating their own children. Jesus is saying, You think things are bad now. Wait and see how bad they will become. It gives us a picture, doesn't it? Of how harsh the judgment was in 70 AD. The judgment will be so bad that Jesus quotes Hosea 10.8 to them and saying to them that you will desire mountains to fall on you. You'll desire for the rocks to crush you so that you do not have to endure the suffering that is going to come. And then he says for, here's the exclamation point to this prophecy. For if they do these things, he says, when the tree is green. When the tree is green. This means that when the truth and life, which is Christ himself, is with you. When God incarnate is with you. When truth and wisdom and life incarnate are with you. If they do these things to you, when this is true, what will they do when the tree is dried up? And your house has left you desolate and you are forsaken, and God is no longer with you, what will they do to you then? Here's the principle. Here's the principle we need to understand from this. God is a just and righteous judge. So what should a good and just and righteous judge do with guilty and unrighteous God cannot, because he is holy, he cannot and will not merely forgive sins by sweeping them under the rug. God cannot and will not merely forgive sins by merely sweeping them under the rug. He must punish all guilty sinners. Why? Because God is good. And he's a good judge. Good judges punish guilty people. Therefore, at the end of all things, all guilty people, all who are guilty before God, they will experience the full and just punishment and wrath of God forever in hell. All guilty people, In the end, we'll experience the just wrath of God forever in hell. This means forever. Eternity. Never ending. I want a book chapter verse for that. Matthew 25, 46, speaking of hell this way, says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How long is eternal? Revelation 14 says it this way. He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Just in case you think forever, is just a long period of time, John adds, and ever, meaning never ending. He says, they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Meaning there is a judgment to come. There is a judgment to come and a wrath to come so great that all who are guilty before Christ, they will not be able to stand and they too will suffer forever and ever. It is something that we do not do well in thinking about. Something we tend to suppress and block out. It's hard to think about. Because this means that every person who has ever broken God's law is guilty. This means anyone who has ever loved anything more than God is guilty. Every person who has ever worshiped, created things over create over the creator. Every person that has taken the Lord's name in vain. Every person that has not honored the Sabbath. Every person who has dishonored their parents. Every person that has committed adultery. Whoever has stolen, irregardless of its value. Anyone who has ever lied. Anyone who has ever killed or even desired someone else's stuff. All of this earns you the, the mark of guilt before God. Jesus actually says anyone who has ever lusted in their heart or hated their brother in their heart, they have committed adultery in the heart and they have committed murder in their heart. Who could stand before God? Who Every single person who has ever broken God's law stands before God, is guilty, and deserves to receive the full wrath of God. If you're tempted to leave, don't. It gets better. But this is true. And if you're a Christian in this room and you preach this message, you may hear people say, well, isn't that a bit of an overreaction? I mean, does God really need to destroy all of Jerusalem for these people's sins? And does eternity and hell really a just penalty for just a few years, 80 to 100 years of sinning? Why? This seems like an overreaction. How, How can a few years of sinning equate to an eternity of suffering? I think that even as believers, for those of us who have been walking with the Lord for a while, it's very tempting. It's very tempting to kind of forget the holiness of God and to think, we don't really deserve hell, do we? I mean, really? I mean, we really deserve hell forever? The moment we forget that, the moment we lose the joy of our salvation. Forever is a strange word in our mind, isn't it? It's hard to grasp eternity, even an eternity of joy, much less an eternity of suffering. It's hard to imagine a suffering that will go on forever without end, with no day being closer to the end than the day before it. It's hard to fathom. But as I just said, we must remember, we must remember that God is holy, God is other. God is uncreated. God is incomprehensibly pure. He is perfect. He is without sin. And because of this, he will not and cannot be in the presence of sin. We have to think, can't he just recreate it and just bring us in, recreate a kingdom, bring us into it? No, we would ruin it. We would ruin that new creation too. We would destroy it. And for that reason, in His holiness, God hates sin and He hates all unrepentant sinners. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 5 4 through 5. It is a righteous and just hatred. Grasp this. Grasp this thought. God created this world. He's existent before all time and all creation. So he is the creator and we are his creation and he can do with us as he pleases. His way is holy. His justice is holy. His law is holy. So don't expect to get your arms all the way around this and to fully understand it because you are not holy. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We should not ask God, how how could you do such a thing? We should merely bow. We may not be able to understand it fully because he is holy and much higher, but we must understand this It's the reality. You can't change the reality. You can't make up your own reality. This is the reality. We are broken. We are depraved. We are rebellious. So we are unholy and therefore separated from God by our sin. We as a human race... We are no different than the people in this crowd doing to Jesus what they did. We're no different. We're no different than the people of this story who are committing the most, the most unjust thing that has ever been committed in the history of the world to the most pure and glorious and divine person that has ever walked the earth. I want us to grasp the grossness And the injustice of what is going on in this text, and I want us to put us there and say we're no different. When you think of the most unjust thing you can think of, what is it? Maybe you think about children being abused or tormented, or maybe your mind goes to some recent school shootings. You say, that's unjust. Maybe your mind goes to the thoughts of babies being ripped out of their mother's wombs. One limb. One limb at a time. Maybe that makes you angry. It should. It should. It is unjust. It is not right. It is horrific. We should hate these things, but I tell you, I tell you today, that none of these things are nearly as unjust as what is happening to this man, Jesus Christ, on this day. For he is worth more than every human being, big or small, that has ever walked the earth. He is worth more. You take every person that has ever existed in the history of humanity and you put their value all together. You add all of their value up and they are but a drop in the ocean compared to this one man. He is the image of the invisible God. In him is life itself. In him is preexistent truth. In him is love, true love holy love, holy grace, holy mercy, holy justice, and the heart of man hates him. The heart of all humanity hates him because we hate what is pure. And we hate what is pure because it reveals to us that we are not pure. We, like this generation Look at God, and we want nothing to do with Him. And when He calls us evil, which is when you read the Word of God, you probably you shouldn't be able to get anything else but that, that we are evil. We don't measure up, we fall short, no one is good, no, not one. The Word of God does that. And when we hear that, we want to kill Him, ignore Him, or just pretend He doesn't exist. In our most natural state, that is exactly who we are. So no, this is not our overreaction from God. Not in the slightest. The fact that Jesus even warns them is mercy upon mercy. The fact that he gives us his word and warns us is mercy upon mercy. Mercy. Israel deserved God's judgment. We deserve God's judgment. But God. But God. God is a just judge who will rightly give the righteous judgment to those who deserve it, but God is also merciful. God is also merciful. He is both a consuming fire And a refuge from the fire. And it's his desire to glorify himself. By making the unpure. Pure. So we keep reading in verse 32. It says two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place of the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, and the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, said, this is the king of the Jews. An inscription to mock him, but how true, they had no idea that inscription was. And is. Our point, our third point this morning is this: our sovereign king saves others by not saving himself. Our sovereign king saves others by not saving himself. So we have four men: Simon, Jesus, and the two criminals being led to a place called the Skull. It's the word in Aramaic called Golgotha, or in the Latin called Calvary. This is where we get the word Calvary from. It is the place where Jesus would be crucified. It is the place where he would be lifted up on a tree. And as as it says, with one of the criminals on his right and the other on his left, fulfilling prophecy that he would be numbered with transgressors counted as a criminal, even though he was innocent. The crucifixion, as you may know, was a brutal and horrific death. Interestingly enough, though, the details of the crucifixion are not found in Scripture. In fact, all of the Gospels merely mention he was crucified. The end. We have to go to extra-biblical, good historical resources to understand what took place at a crucifixion. From the nails in the hands to the to the cross lifted up, to the act of actual suffocation that would take place. None of that's mentioned in the scriptures. They merely mention that he was crucified. And I believe the Spirit of God is influencing each of the writers to do this, to focus not on the severity of Jesus' death, but on the significance of it. The Holy Spirit, via the writers of, like Luke, want us today to read not about the severity of Jesus' death, but the significance of it. It is not to pull at the heartstrings of the reader by making us weep over a man being brutally beaten and killed. That is not the goal. The goal is that you would see this and weep, yes, over your sin. That you would weep over your sin that placed him there. And then we would see the significance of what is taking place here on Calvary. What is the significance? Well, for starters, it was prophesied that the Messiah would suffer in this way. Most clearly, we see this in Isaiah 53. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 53, then go get familiar with it and read it. Jesus even told us many times throughout the Gospel accounts that he was going to suffer. He prophesied his own death what he came to do, which was to die and to rescue many. He re, we remember from previous messages here that as we talked about Passover and the sacrificial system, that God would require sacrifices for sins to cover their sins, and all of this would foreshadow Jesus as the lamb who would come and be the sacrificial lamb. We see in this very passage, Psalm 22, a prophecy of the, of the crucifixion of our Lord, Coming to life as they pierced his hands, as they pierced his feet, as they cast lots for his clothing, as they mock him, all of which is uncannily verbatim in Psalm 22 as to what is actually happening here in this event. Prophecy after prophecy. And of course, we remember Jesus' famous words of John 3:16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish have eternal life. We remember those words, but do we remember what was said before John 3.16? In verses 14 and 15, where Jesus actually gives the means of that salvation. It is the means by which we can receive eternal life. What it means for God to give his Son, It says in verse 14 through 15 that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. What does that mean? To understand this, we have to go back to Numbers 21. Back in Numbers 21, we hear Israel is in the wilderness. They're still in the wilderness. It's been a long time. They begin to murmur and complain. And they even begin to accuse God of just bringing them into wilderness just to let them die. So God responds by sending them snakes. And these snakes, they come and they fight the, the grumblers and the complainers. And many, many, many of them die. Some who are bitten don't die. But, the venom is still cursing through their veins, and death is imminent for them. They recognize their sin, and they plead with Moses to talk to God and do something. So Moses talks to God, and God just heals them, right? No. No, rather, God points them to the cross. God is always pointing us to the cross. He instructs Moses to construct a serpent made of bronze and place the serpent on a pole and to hold the pole up for all to see. And then God gives them a promise. He promises them that anyone who looks upon the snake, even if you've been bitten, even if death is imminent for you, then God will remove the venom and your life will be spared. What did God do here? He said, lift up the snake for all to see. In other words, lift up the very thing that is killing them. Lift up the very thing that is killing them. God wants them to trust the promise. Act in obedience by looking upon that which is killing them. Look to God's provision for them. And that act of faith would save them. It would spare them. What a glorious picture that Jesus applies to himself. Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that he must be lifted up. Meaning that just as the snake was lifted up, so must he be lifted up. Why? So that whoever believes and acts in that belief, they will be saved. Just as Israelite was. Here's the point. Sin. Sin is our greatest problem. Sin is our greatest problem, and as we discussed already, it brings one thing, and it brings it swiftly, and it brings only death. Sin brings only death. Just as the serpent brought death to Israel, so sin brings death to all. And what Jesus came to do was to become sin, to become the very thing that is killing us and be lifted up for all to see. Second Corinthians 5 gives us insight. It says, He made him, God being made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see how unpure becomes pure? The significance of the cross is this. It is at the cross. It is at the cross where the great exchange takes place. It is a great and glorious exchange. Christ, the eternal, perfect, sinless, and divine Son of God, would become that which He is not. He would become sin for us and receive our just punishment. On the cross, Christ would take all of God's wrath, all of his anger, all of his punishment. He would take it upon himself, the wrath that was due to you, the wrath that was due to me, and he would bear the full weight of God's anger and judgment upon himself. And in this perfect and pure sacrifice, God's wrath would be perfectly satisfied. He would become cursed. For us, as Galatians 3.13 says, for cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He would become cursed for us so that, so that any who would look upon him, just like Israel had to look at the snake, any who would look to him and only him, they could do nothing to get the venom out of their body except look and trust the promise trust the promise, look to the serpent. Just like that, we must look to Christ and only Christ. Then in exchange, we would get his perfect life credited to us. It is a glorious exchange from a very glorious Savior. It is the reason Jesus could even say, Father, forgive me. Is the whole reason he could even say, Father, forgive them. Because he was asking for their forgiveness because he was taking on their sin. Namely, the ones for whom he was praying for. This is a general prayer in some sense and a very specific prayer in others. Jesus has already demonstrated to us that he could forgive sins He told us that when he forgave sinners in his ministry on earth. we didn't need to ask for their sins to be forgiven. He needed, but he desired to demonstrate something. This prayer is demonstrating that in spite of all that was going on, in spite of the heinous injustice that we talked about before, in spite of the ridicule, the absolute blasphemy, which is ironic because they were killing him for blasphemy, but all of this was the most blasphemous act that has ever happened in the face of the earth. In spite of all of that was taking place here at Calvary, we get to see the heart of God even still. We get to see the heart of Jesus, the image of God, demonstrating the true heart of God. Yes, the sign over his head read, Jesus, King of the Jews. It was designed to mock him with his title, yet it would declare the truth. And we see the heart of the true king. Or as John 10 would put it, the heart of the good shepherd. The heart that says, I still offer forgiveness. I still offer forgiveness I still offer forgiveness even to those who in willful, in willful ignorance in willful ignorance they would suppress the truth of who Christ is they would deny who he is and they would willfully put him to death they did not get the expanse of what they were doing they didn't understand just how magnificent Christ was and in that they were ignorant but they were willfully ignorant and they needed to be forgiven otherwise Jesus would not have asked for it. But in that ignorance, they committed the greatest evil to ever take place, ever. There is no other evil that will ever take place greater than this evil. And to them, to those people, God says, forgive them. He offers forgiveness. In contrast to Pilate and Herod and other Jewish leaders, other kings, if you will, who only want to save themselves, They would mock Jesus and tell him to save himself, but the good shepherd, the good king, saves not himself so that he may save others. Oh, he could have saved himself. Don't think that he couldn't. Don't forget he never lost control. But he opened not his mouth, he commanded no army of angels so that he may rescue those who are his those whom he prayed for he knew who he was praying for we get to see later on who he was praying for as the prayers are answered we'll see next week about a thief who mocks him in one moment and his promised paradise in the next we see a roman guard come to faith and finally at pentecost At Pentecost, just a little over a month later, Peter preaches a sermon to this very crowd. If you remember, he said, you put him on the cross. You killed the Son of God. To these people who are here right now, sneering and jeering and mocking and yelling crucify, they are in the crowd that Peter preaches to. And we see this prayer of forgiveness answered when the very people in this crowd the ones who mocked him and spit on him and killed the Son of God, many of them will look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will recognize their sin and they will repent and forgiveness will be granted to even them. This is without a doubt the most encouraging thing I have ever read. This is without a doubt the most encouraging thing we will ever hear or read in our lifetime may we see that God is a merciful God. He's a merciful God. And though his anger is against the guilty, he is willing. He is willing and he is able to forgive even the worst of sinners because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, even you can be forgiven. Even me, even I can be forgiven it's just so encouraging because sometimes it just feels like that was the last straw. There's no more forgiveness. But I don't really care what you've done. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far or how deep into sin you have gone. God extends forgiveness to you in Jesus Christ. I don't care how far down the hole of sin and depravity that God in His infinite wisdom has let you go. You have never gone too far down the hole that His righteous right hand is not long enough to reach, grab, and pull you back to Himself if you would just look to the sun, God offers you His righteousness in exchange for your sin. What a deal. He offers you righteousness and mercy. He offers you grace. He offers you the kingdom purchased with his blood. You need not tithe to get rid of your guilt and shame. There's no amount of money you can give to get rid of your guilt and your shame. You can't read your Bible enough. There's no, I don't care if you read it, the whole Bible every year. It doesn't get rid of your guilt and your shame. You can't read enough or pray enough. You can't pray your shame away. You can't serve people enough. You can't serve the poor enough. You can't serve in this body enough to get rid of your guilt and shame. You can't do anything but look. But look. Like Israel who looked upon the serpent, you must face your sin. Face your sin. Look to that which is killing you. You must face it, recognize it, and then you must look upon the one who willingly became sin on your behalf and offered you his perfect life. Meaning, put your faith in his work on your behalf and live. Look and live. God will not clear the guilty, but in Christ you are declared not guilty. Christian, brothers and sisters, this means that we have a wellspring of forgiveness offered to you. An eternal, never-ending wellspring of forgiveness offered to us, meaning that sin can no longer kill you if you're in Christ. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone. There is no death. There is no punishment. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Judgment has been paid. But what can sin do to you? What can sin do to you? It can keep you out of fellowship with God, it can keep you down and out, it can keep you from living the life God has called you to, it can keep you from using your gifts to edify the church. It can destroy the mission that God has for you. It can destroy your family. It can destroy your testimony. It can keep you from all kinds of things that God wants for you, but it cannot kill you anymore. So when you sin, run to the wellspring of grace. Run to this glorious gospel. Run with all your legs' might back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember what was accomplished for you. Repent of the sin and then get up, dust yourself off and keep running. That's how you live the Christian life. That's how you deal with sin. You don't wallow about it. You don't worry about it and the fact that that you're condemned or that God doesn't offer you forgiveness. He does. It is a wellspring of forgiveness for you at the cross. Keep running to the throne of grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace for you. You're going to sin. You're going to slip. You're going to fall. But the only thing that sin can do to you if you don't go to the gospel is keep you down. And that's right where Satan wants you. Not running the race. Not fighting the good fight. So get up. Look to the cross. Receive the forgiveness, dust yourself off, and run the race that God has for you. You can do that because Christ, who is raised from the dead, lives in you. No more death. Reconciled to God. Jesus went through the greatest suffering so that you might have these things, and with these things bring him glory. Get up, dust yourself off, and bring him glory. What more do we need to praise him all day long? What greater truth must we remember to praise him when money is short, when marriages are hard, when work is tough, when sickness prevails? What more do you need to be joyful and happy? Should we not be the happiest people on the planet? but we forget. So we need sermons like these. We need texts like these. We need friends that remind us and point us to texts like these so that we can remember the gospel and keep glorifying God with our lives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything, every single one of you that has breath, let Him praise the Lord. Let's pray.